And so following along with Peter, I thought for Easter Sunday, we would look at the Apostle Peter again, and the Apostle Peter's first sermon after the empty tomb. And so it's in Acts 2, verses 29 to 33 is our starting point, and essentially the world, for the first time, is confronted with the reality of an empty tomb. And confronted with that reality, that the tomb is empty and Jesus is risen, how do we respond? What do we do with that? And this is how Peter preached. Brethren, in in verse 29 to 33 of Acts 2, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David, King David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. David is still in the tomb. And so because he was a prophet... And he knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne. He, David, looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. And so here's Peter in the middle of his sermon basically saying, David's dead and he's still in his grave. And so when he was writing in the Psalms, which Peter quotes here, when he was writing that he would, he would, his Lord would neither be abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay, Peter says David was looking ahead to Christ and this has happened. It's happened right now. It's the first sermon after this happening. Imagine that, 2,000 years ago. And the problem that the people are facing as Peter preaches this is the problem that every person in our culture and in most of the world invariably encounters at some point in their lives. What do you do with that claim? What do you do with that claim that Peter just made of an empty tomb? What do we do with a religion that will not meekly allow itself to only be a philosophy? or to simply be a tradition, or to just be a myth? What do we do with a faith that refuses to be a blind faith, or a subjective faith, but instead a faith that subjects itself to the scrutiny of witnesses, and a faith that ties itself so tightly to historical, observable events? What do we do with a God who refuses to safely exist in just sort of a spiritual realm of feelings and intuitions, but instead this God gets himself born into our world, walks around in plain sight, is very vocal about who he is, God in the flesh, he teaches like no one else has taught, he does miracles, he fulfills prophecy, he stirs up the whole Roman Empire without any discretion or decency at all on his part. What do you do with a God who, instead of asking us to serve Him, comes and serves us? Instead of a God asking His servants, us, His creation, to die on His behalf for His benefit, He comes to die on our behalf. And then to really force our hand, to really back us into a corner, what do you do with a God who comes back to life again, leaves an empty tomb behind, and walks around talking to people, eating breakfast with them, and making even a bigger scene in Jerusalem to the point where you're really left with no opportunity to ignore Him. And so we have a problem, because this is the Christian faith. It forces us to deal with history and reality and flesh and blood and resurrection. And so what are you going to do with the claims of the gospel? At some point, unless you're living under a rock your whole life, you have to deal with this question. 
it will not remain safely unanswered. Because the evidence speaks for itself. The text I just read from the book of Acts is the disciple Peter, and he's preaching in Jerusalem to crowds of thousands just about two months after Jesus was crucified and then rose from the grave, and he was seen by hundreds of people, and then he ascended into heaven. And the fact that Peter is even out there, this Peter, if you know the story of where Peter was beforehand, we'll get into that later, but the fact that he's even out in Jerusalem preaching in the streets at all is part of the evidence, but we'll see that, that later. But for right now, let's look at what Peter's claiming to be a witness of, the historical evidence the confrontation that we have with an empty tomb. And to do that, I'm going to look at Luke. Luke 1 to 4 tells us who Luke is a little bit. He says, Inasmuch as I have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those from the beginning who are eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me, as well as having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. That's how Luke starts his gospel. This is Luke saying, I have investigated all this. I am writing it out for you in consecutive order. I am making sure that you are clear about everything that happened among us. And you say, okay, that's fine, but who is this Luke guy? So what? Well, he's a Gentile believer. He's probably Roman. And I love Luke because he's like one of us. He came to faith after the resurrection. He's a Gentile. He's not a Jew. He's just this guy who heard about Jesus, heard the gospel, came to faith, started following the disciples around and writing down all the stuff that he saw and witnessed and, and heard them say. He says he's the beloved physician. He's a doctor. It says in Colossians 4.14, Luke's a doctor. He followed Paul on some of his missionary journeys. And unlike the letters of Paul, which we've been in, you remember 1 Corinthians, Paul's letters, mostly written by scribes who are trying to keep up with Paul as he's reciting these things, usually in prison, and he has his infamous run-on sentences. In the book of Luke and Acts, which is the other volume that Luke wrote, you have some of the best Greek composition in the New Testament. Luke is educated, he's a doctor, he writes perfect Greek, there is no question of the clarity of what he is writing, he's educated, and he's deliberate in his purpose to tell us exactly what happened. And he was in Rome with Paul and Mark for a time, and he had access to Barnabas, and he had access to some of the 70 disciples that Jesus set out as recorded in Luke 10, and he could have talked to Mary, the mother of Jesus, he could have talked to Mary Magdalene or Joanna or many others. Luke 8 talks about his association with them. He was in Caesarea with Paul and the disciples of Caesarea, says in Acts 21. So Luke's got it, okay? So this is why I'm going to Luke, because Luke has been there, he's seen it from the outside, he has no bias, he's not a Jew, he's not even a disciple. He has no reason to believe any of this except that he saw it and recorded it. And so I go to Luke to look at the evidence that Peter is preaching to the people in Jerusalem in which he is confronting them with in the empty tomb. And Luke, it's in Luke 24, 1-12 that Luke outlines this very clearly, as plainly as possible, what happened. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they, the women who had prepared the spices, came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise again. 
And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and all the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. Now what are you going to do with that? The evidence, as I say, speaks for itself. And that's what it is. It's evidence provided at face value without any excuses, without any theories or any rationalizations. Luke is just telling us what happened. And I won't go into all the different excuses and theories that there are, but you can safely set aside all the old arguments that have been circling around the last 50 or 60 or 500 years. Jesus didn't swoon. He didn't lapse into a coma and then somehow roll off a two-ton stone. It wasn't mass hysteria or rational dissonance theory, as they would suggest it was. There was no conspiracy to steal the body. None of the texts point to a group of disciples in any frame of mind to do that, and there was nothing for them to gain by it. In fact, the text says that the disciples who were supposedly stealing the body were actually in hiding with doors locked in fear of the Jews. That's how John describes it himself, one of the disciples in John 20:19. So they're hiding away in fear with locked doors, not out stealing bodies. And any hopes the disciples may have had of Jesus leading them into a messianic kingdom were literally buried. You have to understand the feelings of the disciples at this point. Jesus is in the tomb. The story of Jesus has come to an end and everybody is standing around speechless. It says that the women reported it. And even there, if you had a conspiracy to somehow report that your Messiah had come back to life and you're a Jewish person... The reality of the culture of the day is these are the last people you would have reporting the evidence because Jewish women didn't even give testimony in court. It was unreliable in the Jewish culture for women to give testimony. And so this idea that, that these women were somehow ex- supposed to be setting up this conspiracy or, or ex- being the credible witnesses of it doesn't even make sense. But all in all, this is not a group of people just waiting on the edge of their seat for an excuse to hold a sunrise service. The disciples didn't get it. All of the teaching of the Gospels keep repeating the fact the disciples didn't understand what Jesus was talking about. They had not picked up that Jesus was going to come back to life and come out of the tomb. They weren't expecting Him to rise. They weren't counting the hours until their Messiah shows up on schedule. They were skeptical. What does it say? It says the, the women came and reported it and to the disciples' ears it sounded like nonsense. The biggest skeptics in the story right now are the disciples. They don't believe it. And their evidence was the same that we have. They have an empty tomb, a report from these women, and what are they going to do with it? So let's say for a moment you wanted to prescribe the notion that it was a conspiracy of disciples, that this was their master plan to steal the body. And then have the discovery reported by the women, which no Jew would believe. And then they would record these events. But as they record these events in their Gospels, they make themselves look foolish and skeptical and fearful, which is not a very flattering thing to write about yourself. And then the reason for this amazing plan was so that they could set themselves up as leaders among the Jews or something. There was some big payday, some, some big profit for them if they pulled off this grand conspiracy. No, When they started to tell the story, they were actually beaten, thrown in jail, and some of them were killed. Eventually, all of them were killed for this story. There's actually no reason for them to come up with any other reason or story for what happened other than the fact that it happened. I mean, all these old stories are basically 
discarded now. Not even credible skeptics would believe them anymore. The reality is, if you look at the historical evidence, that the early Christians, the disciples and the early Christians, absolutely believed in the empty tomb and the resurrected Jesus. If they didn't, well, there is just no, there, there is no if they didn't. They did. They absolutely did, and there was no question of their faithfulness to that story. And there's no evidence of anything other than that anywhere in Scripture. So our problem remains. We have this empty tomb, and what are we going to do with the claims that Peter has just made? The claims of the gospel that the tomb is empty and Christ is risen. But evidence, I understand, will not compel belief. No matter how compelling the evidence might be, it won't affect a skeptic. I mean, it's pretty clear I believe it, right? I mean, I'm pretty passionate in my belief of it. But I know there are some skeptics here, and there's no need to raise your hands, but you know who you are. And there are skeptics, and no amount of evidence compels belief. But what evidence can do, and what I hope evidence does do this morning, is evidence can force unbelief to question itself. Evidence can compel skepticism to ask serious and honest questions about itself. Not just waving things off without any sort of intellectual honesty. Not just saying, oh, I, I don't believe in any of that stuff. I don't even have to think about it. You know, because I've already decided I don't believe in it. So I'm not actually going to give it any sort of credible thought. Evidence forces honest skepticism to ask questions of itself. That's the scientific method. That's how we approach. We approach evidence with a certain worldview, and then we adjust our views as the evidence warrants. That's what, that's what we do. That's how we live in the world. And it's easy for the skeptic to say, I don't understand the power and transformation I see in Christian lives around me, but I've already decided that dead people don't rise again. And so whatever the explanation is, I've already decided that there must be some other explanation than that there really is a powerful personal God in the universe. Because believing in the resurrection of Jesus means, means I have to exchange my worldview that says things like dead people coming back to life can't happen for a worldview that says such things as dead people coming back to life can happen. I have to exchange my worldview that says we're a cosmic accident that crawled out of a hot pool of mud some billion years ago, and I have to exchange that worldview where there's no objective moral consequence or purpose for my life, I have to take that worldview and I would have to exchange it for a worldview of a God who has revealed himself in the world in the majesty of creation, who's made himself evident in everything around me. He's revealed himself in the history of the people of Israel. He's revealed himself through the words of the Bible. He's revealed himself through the historical person of Jesus, his son. And in that worldview, it would be perfectly logical then to conclude that this God of the universe certainly would defeat death. It would be illogical to think that the Son of God would not be able to beat death. And so when you actually have the right worldview, the evidence makes sense. And that's how science works. The evidence is the evidence. The evidence speaks for itself. But we have to interpret it correctly. And any scientist will tell you that in the face of evidence contrary to your worldview, you have to adjust your worldview. When we discovered that the earth was not flat, our worldview had to change. When we discovered that the earth was not actually at the center of the universe, our worldview had to change. Scientists adjust their worldview as they interpret evidence all the time. And here's the reality of this evidence. Coming to faith in Jesus demands a reshaping of your worldview. You cannot have faith in Jesus and not leave your worldview unaffected. But that's okay. That's not scary. It's good to have your worldview always made more and more accurate to reflect the real state of things. And that's what we want to do. We want our understanding of reality to reflect reality. 
when Peter preaches about this resurrection and when we read the book of Acts, he doesn't provide any rationale for the resurrection. Peter doesn't try to explain it. He doesn't see any need to debate the scientific points of it. And the author, Luke, our doctor, he doesn't feel compelled to provide any sort of parenthetical scientific insights based on his knowledge of anatomy. They just give the evidence as it is. The tomb was empty. We went and saw it. Jesus wasn't there. A whole bunch of people saw him. We had breakfast with him. We saw him ascend into heaven. And it's mystery. But Peter and Luke embrace the mystery. I'm sure as a doctor, Luke was baffled, right? How does this happen? Peter certainly was confused, but it doesn't bother him. And scientists, rational thinkers, embrace mystery all the time. Light is a particle. Light is a wave. Light is a wave and a particle at the same time. Mystery. But it doesn't mean we don't embrace the reality of our creation, even when there's mystery. It doesn't mean our worldview can't accept it. And so I say to the skeptics, listen, you can embrace the Christian worldview with a little mystery. It's okay. You don't have to solve the mystery of the empty tomb other than how it's presented. What we see now through a glass dimly, we will soon be made clear, Paul says in 1 Corinthians. We see things right now that are really confusing and mysterious to us, but they will be fully known. And mystery is not a threat to any true intellectual or rational thinker. Mystery is expected. And so we look at the empty tomb and we deal with the reality of the mystery of it. And as skeptics, we want to argue with it or to come up with some sort of alternative plan. And yet Peter and Luke say, this is the evidence, just embrace the mystery of it. That it is the evidence that is natural to a worldview that says there is a loving, personal, powerful God and He has a Son and He sent His Son into the world. And of course, if you understand and and you have this worldview, then it makes perfect sense that this Son of God would be able to defeat death. And of course His tomb would be empty. It would be ridiculous to be looked at any other way. And all the evidence makes perfect sense when our minds are aligned with the worldview that God is who He says He is and has done what He said He would do. And so what is the evidence then? So what does it mean? And the plane is landing, don't worry. What is the evidence? What does it mean? All this death and resurrection stuff. What happened? The first question, what happened? What was happening, Peter says? Jesus was making an atonement. He says in Acts 2.36, Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. That's Messiah or the anointed one. This is the Jesus who you crucified. So what was happening? What was going on with this death and resurrection? Is Jesus was making atonement. He was taking on himself all the wrath of God so that we could be set free from that. And Peter's clear about what was happening. This is not conjecture or invention. This is what has happened in history. Jesus died and Jesus rose to provide full satisfaction for our sins. And it makes it possible for his spirit to come and live with us. Hebrews 9.14 says, The blood of Christ, who though the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish, blemish to God, cleanse your consciousness Conscience, sorry, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That's what he did. Jesus was doing something. He was cleansing our conscience so that we could live rightly before God. And this is the new world view, the awakening to the reality that there is evil and good, that there is darkness in life, that there is death in life, that there is a personal and moral God who's active in his creation who is perfect in justice, and his perfect justice must be satisfied, but who is also perfect in love, and his perfect love sent his own son to pay the price for his perfect justice on our behalf. That's what's happening. That's the world the Christian lives in. Well, who says this? What's the source? Who are your witnesses? Peter says. 
Peter says, the Old Testament scripture is my witness, quoting Joel 2.28-32, then he quotes Psalm 16, then he quotes Psalm 132, then he quotes 2 Samuel 7.12, and then he quotes Psalm 110. Peter says, my witness is the Old Testament scripture which predicted all of this and foretold of all of this and Jesus fulfilled all of these prophecies. And then he says, my second witness, because in Jewish court you have to have two witnesses before anything. He says, my second witness is me and us. We saw it. We saw it with our own eyes. We are eyewitnesses of these events. That's who says. Well, why? Why bother with all this? What is its relevance to anyone? Why should I care? Because there is a pure, righteous, and just God that we are meant to know about And we have started out on the wrong side of his justice, but Jesus has done something to rescue us from that. And so why, or why bother, who cares, is relevant to you. It's far more relevant to you than whether the earth is flat or round. It's far more relevant to you than whether light is a wave or a particle. That doesn't matter. What matters in the worldview is that there is a God who we start out on the wrong side of his justice, but that Jesus can put us on the right side of God's justice and can repair our relationship with Him. And this loving God is reaching out, trying to communicate with you, trying to reach to you to save you. And so it matters. This universe, this reality, either has a loving God who wants to know you, or it doesn't. And you've got to decide what your worldview is. And you've got to decide whether there is a loving God who you've got to have a relationship or whether this is just a clock that's going to wind itself out and end in nothing and there's no purpose to anything. But if your worldview is wrong and you don't deal with this evidence, it's relevant to you. It's eternally relevant to you. But then the final question, how? How does it come about that a person secures this forgiveness? How do we do this? Peter, you're preaching this message. that Okay, we crucified Jesus, and Jesus was who he says he was, and the tomb was empty, and so that's proof of the promise. But how do we do it? How does it come about that this person secures this forgiveness and gets right with the justice of God? Did everyone just wake up that morning after Jesus rose and they were all set right? How does it happen? And Peter doesn't leave that out of his sermon either. He tells them in Acts 2:37 to 39. It says, now when they had heard this, they were pierced to the heart and they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Well, that's us. We're the far off, right? We're 2,000 years away. (laughs) We're a long way from that first day, that first sermon after confronting the empty tomb. But Peter tells us how it happens. You repent. And you may be pierced, as these people were. You may be struck by your own rebellion and sin. You may be convicted in your heart. You may lie awake at 3 o'clock in the morning some nights and just wonder where your life went wrong. And you know something doesn't line up quite right. And you are convicted by your moral discomfort and your intellectual dishonesty or whatever. And you're convicted to respond and you're pierced to the heart. And Peter says, repent, because God is there waiting for you if you are pierced. Or your response might start a little differently. And I put this in here, that it might start with squirming, right? A little intellectual or moral discomfort, a little doubt because your experiences in the world are not lining up with exactly how you thought they would and you are learning more and more that your experiences and your, the way you see the world and people working lines up more and more with what the Bible says. And you're starting to doubt and in your own heart you're starting to agree that maybe the Bible has more 
common sense and more things to say about how I see people acting in the world than I thought. And that's how I came. I came squirming at what became more and more and more obvious in my life. That's how people like C.S. Lewis came. They came by examining the evidence and the uncomfortable reality that a universe without God was not adding up. And so some come pierced to the heart and some come squirming because it's just not adding up as they look at the evidence honestly. And it's how a lot of people came in Paul's church planting when he, it says, reasoned with them from the scripture on the Sabbath. Sabbath after Sabbath after Sabbath, Paul would reason with the Jews from the scripture and they would come squirming to the reality that Jesus was who he was. They would come very uncomfortable with the reality that the tomb is empty and they had to do something about it because we're not alone in this universe. There is a God who demands an answer from us. But however you get there, what it amounts to is just as Peter says, it says you repent, and that word means literally you turn around. You turn your life around. You turn your thinking around. You turn your worldview around. You stop running away from God and you run to God. You stop rejecting and belittling God and you start praising God and worshiping God. You start realizing not how unimportant He is, but how He is the most important thing in your life. And everything turns about in an about faith. And that's the story just like of the prodigal son, if you remember that story. He had run away, taken all his stuff, all the stuff that God, his father, had given him, and he went and blew it all on himself selfishly. He had all the toys, all the houses, all the boats, all the women, all the everything, and he ran his life the way he wanted it. And then eventually he, his plot line ended. He got to the end of the line just like the disciples. And his, it didn't work out for him. He was feeding the pigs and eating with the pigs. And he decided he had to turn around and run back home. And when he turned around and ran back home, what did he find? He found a father running to him. And that's what repentance is. You turn around and you run back to God. And you find that God is there running to you to welcome you back. That's what repenting is. So how does faith come? It comes by repentance. It comes by laying down your sword, giving up your fight, realizing that you have nothing to offer. For some people it means stop trying to earn yourself into his good books by being a good person or by working in the church or by morality. Right? It means recognizing the fact that you are absolutely bankrupt. There is absolutely nothing in your tank. There is nothing in your bank. There is nothing you can offer God. You're at the end of the rope. The knot has been tied. The knot has come undone. There's nothing left. There's nothing left in the bank. You give up your fight. You recognize you're bankrupt. You realize there's no point in rebelling. You have nothing to offer. And when you get to that point, you turn to God and you realize that because of the empty tomb, He is there waiting for you to turn to Him and love Him and to be loved in return. Peter keeps on exhorting them, he says in the sermon here. Peter kept on exhorting them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So he confronted them with the evidence. That's the evidence. We have a God who will not be ignored. You have to deal with this question in your life at some point. His son came physically into our world to show us the way back to God. And he came to pay the price that needed to be paid because we cannot pay it. And he has an empty tomb with all the witnesses and all the evidence presented at face value, well recorded, to prove the promise is real. This is not an empty promise. This is real. God is who he says he is and does what he says he does. And he has the testimony of witnesses willing to die for what they knew. Every one of the apostles eventually was killed because of this story. This is not a story you make up and then tell. This is a story that will get you killed. 
And yet they told that story so that we who were far off today could hear it. And there is the Holy Spirit drawing you even today to see the evidence again. It is no accident that every one of us are here this morning. It is no accident that the Holy Spirit has put us together and put the people in your life, your friends, your family, to be able to speak to you about the love of God. It's no accident that we have the scriptures that we can look into and study and preach and teach from. The Holy Spirit is drawing us even today to see the evidence again and not ignore it but respond. Whether pierced by guilt or maybe just starting to squirm a little bit from doubt that maybe, maybe there's something here that I have not honestly looked at. Whichever way you come to it, don't walk away from the evidence of an empty tomb unchanged. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you this morning for this reality of an empty tomb, and it confronts us. It confronts us all at different times in our life. And Father, at some point, we all have got to decide what we're going to do with it. And so Lord, I just pray, I pray by your Holy Spirit that there is conviction here this morning whether it's remembering those mornings lying awake at three in the morning and struggling with our own inability to meet even our own expectations of goodness, let alone yours. I mean, we can't even be good in our own eyes, let alone be good in the eyes of a perfect, holy, and righteous God. And Father, thank goodness for Jesus who says we don't have to be perfect. I'll be perfect for you. And as I enter your life and you ask for my Holy Spirit, I'll transform you. But I've paid the price so that you don't have to pay. Or Father, maybe it's people who are just squirming a little intellectually. They've been skeptics, they're doubting, they're wondering, yeah, I've heard all this, I don't believe it. Father, convict them to look at the evidence at face value. It's not scary to change your worldview. It's smart to change your worldview to fit the evidence. And the evidence is that there is a personal God who created everything that we see. It's evident in your creation. It's evident in the history of Jesus. It's evident in the empty tomb. You've always said who you are. You've always said what you would do. You've always done what you have done. You are faithful to the end. Father, convict us to believe it, to live it on this side of the cross and for eternity. Father God, I just ask that by your Holy Spirit there be conviction here this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.